Good morning, everyone. There is a verse in the Psalms, Psalm 42, that says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants after the Lord. I'll be honest, one of the things, and where did Betty end up sitting? Betty, thank you for your encouragement and your testimony to us. And I think one of the reasons this encourages me, and I can guarantee encourages the elders, There's nothing we want to see more. Here's our vision for the church, that we would be a church that is absolutely hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the gospel would so overflow in our lives that it would lead us to lives of worship and fellowship, and and it would be the gospel that would lead us. So to see, I really am praising the Lord. I'm not praising Betty. I'm praising the Lord for his work. The fact, like she said, She came to the church seven years ago, and what I see is, as the deer pants for streams of water, so is her soul panting after the things of God. And that's what we want for everyone. We want, you know, I truly believe, this is kind of Augustinian theology here, St. Augustine talked about how God genuinely does want us to be happy. But the famous quote from Augustine is that our souls are restless, which means unhappy. We're looking for everything under the sun. Our happiness will be found in finances, in sports, in money, in family, in being in control of everything. Our hearts are restless or unhappy until they find their rest, their happiness in thee. God wants us to be happy, but the only happiness to be found is in Jesus Christ. And the more we know the fact that he is our gracious redeemer who loved us first, what overflows from us is love. And that's our vision. Nothing makes me more excited, Andrew more excited, and the elders more excited when we are like the deer, panting after streams of water. Let's pray that. We start this time as we turn our hearts to the Word of God. This is not just a simple time of teaching. This is not about just imparting information. Preaching is a time of worship. We are in the very presence of God where God is speaking to us through His Word. He's addressing us. This is his, when we say all scripture is inspired by God and is useful, God is addressing you through his spirit in his word this morning. So we're all, myself included, I'm just kind of a herald here. He's addressing me as well. He's confronting me as well. But he's confronting us with his word to bring our hearts in line and worship him. So we're totally dependent upon him. Let's turn our hearts to him and ask that he would open us and illumine us, give us soft hearts as we come into his very presence this morning. Lord, I do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to show us the wondrous things of Jesus and the good news of the kingdom of God in your word. We confess that we ignore you, we neglect you, we hold you in contempt, we set you aside, we need your spirit to renew us, to revive us to reorder our priorities, to show us that you are the Lord and that there is no other. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And we may have our ultimate rest in you, but we need functionally our rest to be in you each and every day. As the hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I know I'm, I'm prone to wander all over the place, prone to leave the God I love. So I pray through your word and spirit, you would take our hearts You would seal them and seal them by your grace for the courts above. And do this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're continuing our study this morning on the Gospel of Mark just to remind us where we've been and where we're going. There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Very easy to divide it in half. The first eight chapters talk about who is Jesus, who is this king. We learn about the fact that he's love and he's forgiveness and he's healing and he himself is our rest. Then the second eight chapters, chapters 9 through 16, talk about what did this king come to do. In other words, how did he accomplish his mission? What was his mission? How did he accomplish it? And it's all about him moving towards his death and resurrection. He is the king who came to die. He's the king who came to give his life a ransom for many. This morning we are on chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. If you are able, I'd ask you to please stand as we approach and read God's word. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37 begins, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, asked them What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You may be seated. You know, our entire world thirsts for greatness. And Jesus does not condemn that desire, by the way. When we look in the text before us and it says, whoever would be first, he doesn't say it's wrong to desire greatness, but he is reshaping, reforming, and reordering where and what greatness is. But look anywhere around us and you'll see that desire, that thirst for greatness. We love it in our athletes. Look at Kevin Durant, look at LeBron James, look at whoever it is we're following, Tom Brady, whoever it might be in sports, and we love it. In the business world, one of the most popular books several years back was written by a man by the name of Jim Collins, and what was it called? Good to Great. What was the message? Good is not good enough. Be great. We thirst for greatness. Even our politicians. Our president won the election last year basically with the saying, make America great again. I don't think make America mediocre again would have quite done the trick, do you? So the world thirsts for greatness. It is something built in to our human nature. But what is biblical greatness? Is it as the world defines? One of my favorite books is a book by a PCA pastor, a man I look up to a great deal. His name's Scotty Smith. He pastored a church in Franklin, Tennessee, Christ Community Church, a PCA church there near Nashville. The book is titled The Reign of Grace. He dedicates this book to a dear friend of his, a fellow elder by the name of Grant Cunningham, who had, while Scotty was writing the book, died at the age of 37 from a head injury he suffered while playing soccer. Scotty writes that Grant was a living affirmation of this great truth of what biblical greatness is all about. 
He writes, there is no limit to what God can do through the man or woman who does not care who gets the credit. That's amazing. There is no limit to what God can do through the man or woman who does not care, who's oblivious to, doesn't compete with others, doesn't care who gets the credit. Would you consider that ordinary? To live your life seeking someone else to get the credit. Is that what we ordinarily see if we look at our individual lives, our ministries, our churches, the world around us? And that begs the question, how does that happen? How is that even possible? My thesis is that only happens to the degree that we are utterly consumed with the greatness of another, namely Jesus Christ. That spiritual greatness, spiritual hunger, in other words, being like deers, panting for streams of water, will come only to the degree that we are in love with and consumed with Jesus Christ. See, if we take a look at this passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus is journeying with his disciples. Remember I said that the second half of Mark's gospel, they're moving toward what did Jesus come to do? He came to die. He came to die in and around the region of Jerusalem. They are moving towards that. The text this morning tells us that they're coming to Galilee and Capernaum, places that are more familiar. What we see is there's an urgency, there's in a sense a compulsion to move towards Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was going to accomplish his mission. And while traveling, Jesus is teaching. As a matter of fact, there are three times in the text where we read the words he said to them or saying to them, knitting together in a kind of unity the text where he is teaching them about biblical greatness. Especially, and we'll see this a little later on in the text, when they come together. And I I have to admit, I love how Jesus handles this. This is the Jesus who knows everything, by the way. And he stops as they're journeying, and he says, hey, guys, what are you guys talking about? See, I love that part. There's parts sometimes in narratives where things have to crack you up and make you laugh a little bit. Did Jesus really not know what they were talking about? And yet he doesn't attack, he doesn't condemn. What a master counselor that he probes by asking questions. The text before us is going to ask us a question. The Holy Spirit wants to probe your heart and my heart and our hearts together this morning, asking us the question, what is the nature of true greatness? He wants us to pursue true greatness, but he's going to show us three things. The text shows us three things. True greatness has a direction. In other words, it has a trajectory. Jesus will show us and teach us the direction of true greatness. Then he defines true greatness. He reverses all human values by giving us a definition of true greatness. And then lastly, when he takes the child and enacts that parable, at the end of the passage, he gives us a demonstration of true greatness. So true greatness has a direction, it has a definition, and it has a demonstration. Look with me at the text, verse 30, and let's look at the trajectory, the direction true greatness goes. They went out from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. And here's the first time the text says, saying to them. So he's teaching them the direction of true greatness by teaching them his destiny. Here's where he's headed. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. 
but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Three times in this latter half of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to prophesy or predict his impending death and resurrection. This particular one is a little briefer in its formulation. Mark tends to always be very compact. And what it's emphasizing is Jesus' abandonment to the hands of men. The fact that men were going to do with him whatever they wanted. This is the sense of the text when it says that he was going, the Son of Man will be delivered, handed over into the hands of men. And that men were going to do whatever they wanted to do with him. They were going to have their way with him. William Lane, whose comments on this passage, says that the language to deliver up or hand over is a very important concept in the context of lawsuits and especially in the Jewish theology of martyrdom. More than simply the coming of an individual into another's power, the term connotes the actual fulfillment of God's will as expressed in Scripture. Particularly in martyrdom, God is the one who permits or hinders the handing over in fulfillment of his deeper purposes. Lane writes, Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men by God. And what takes place on the level of historical occurrence has ultimate significance because it centers in the action of God. Later on in the New Testament, Luke, who wrote his two volumes, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, will talk about the fulfillment of this action of God. He's recording in his narrative Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he writes in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up, there's that same language again, delivered up into the hands of men, delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, the disciples don't understand what's going on yet. But Jesus is teaching them, this is what's coming. This is my destiny. This is the direction of true greatness. Wouldn't we all agree that true greatness is manifested most clearly in the person of Jesus? And so Jesus is saying, here's what it looks like. Here's the direction it goes. And what does it teach? It teaches that the direction or the trajectory of greatness is downward. The trajectory of greatness will always be seen in the giving of one's life for another. It is not in the building of oneself up. Do you see how opposite this is of the world? The world is all about self-image. Promote the self. Put forward your best self. Biblical greatness is all about laying down one's life, giving of one's life, humility, service, and sacrifice. No wonder the disciples are kind of scratching their head, going, what in the world is he talking about? See, think about it. Why do they not get it? This completely shatters their expectations. See, what is the nature of what shapes their expectations? This is not what the destiny, Peter had just confessed rightly who Jesus is. You are the Christ, meaning you are the Messiah, anointed and sent by God. They're like, okay. With that confession came a certain set of their expectations. And I guarantee you, one of those expectations was not of a Messiah who would die. One historian, one scholar put it this way. He said, probably not all Jews of the time 
believed that God would send a Messiah, but nobody at all who believed that if and when God did send one, that Messiah would have to suffer, still less have to die. See, Jesus is uttering these words. He's saying to them, he's teaching them. And what's the first thing he teaches them? The text says, he says, for the Son of Man. Now that phrase would have definite meaning to them. They would hear that, and that would be a very familiar phrase to a first century Jewish person, a first century Jewish mindset. Because when they heard that phrase, Son of Man, that would immediately hearken them back to their scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and a prophecy, and a very specific prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7. For in Daniel chapter 7, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. Same phrase, same words. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, now listen carefully, because this is what shaped their expectations. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It means will never end. It will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, do you think that sounds like a Messiah who's going to die? Is it any wonder that Jesus is saying, for the Son of Man, and they're going, we get that. For the Son of Man, and immediately, sign us up on that team. Think about our expectations. Which of one of us doesn't want to sign up? You know, you give me a team, and you say, Jeff, here's our team. It's going to be all about dominion, glory, and a kingdom. I'm there. That's the team I'm signing up for. And then he says, do you know how dominion, glory, and a kingdom is going to be achieved? Uh, By the way, rejection, suffering, and death. Hmm. Do I want to sign up for that team? See, let me challenge you with a question. If you want true biblical greatness, what shapes your expectations? Is your expectations that life should go perfectly fine? Everything should be great. Everything should be rosy all the time. See, it begs the question for the application, do we truly listen to the word of God? Or do we just listen for the right ideas? Do we listen and do we have the word of God truly shape and govern our minds and hearts? See, listen to what the word of God says. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? James says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only. In the writings of the early church, there's a very early writing, probably late in the first century, early in the second century, written by the saints in Rome to the saints in Corinth. And the letter is called Second Clement wasn't necessarily written by Clement. In fact, I don't even know why it was called that, but it was written by the church at Rome to the church in Corinth. And it was written by the church at Rome to the church at Corinth to challenge and encourage them to repent, especially of some of their impurities, their divisions that occurred within them. But in one pertinent line of this particular letter, we read, but how do we acknowledge Jesus? By doing what he says and not disobeying his commandments and honoring him not only with our lips, but with our whole heart and with our whole mind. Jesus is showing us the direction of true greatness. 
He's encouraging us to desire true greatness. The right application is not saying, well, I'll just kind of squelch that desire. No, you were built to desire greatness. What he's doing is saying, here's the trajectory of it. Here's the direction of it. Are you listening to the word of God? I even press this further. Because not only does he say, here's the direction it's going to go. He defines it very specifically. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, so apparently they were staying, doesn't tell us whose house or whatever, but they're journeying, they're traveling, and they come to a house together, and he asks them, this is the part I love, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Of course they kept silent. They had to be embarrassed, because what were they talking about? The text tells us, on the way they're arguing with one another about who was the greatest. They've just heard Jesus talking about the direction of true greatness. Their response, I wonder if it's Matthew or John. Who's greater, Peter or James? I bet you it's that Thaddeus fella. He's quiet over here, but don't overlook Thaddeus. I bet you he's on top of the list. And they're arguing with each other about status, about rank, about who's the greatest. And Jesus sat down, called the 12, and here's the second time it says, he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Do you hear that? If anyone would be first. In other words, if anyone would be first, he's saying that's a good thing. If you want to be excellent, you want to be great, that's great. Here's its definition. Your rank is last. Everyone else is above you. Everyone else is before you. And you are in the position of being the servant the slave of all. See, if in the first section of Mark's narrative we dealt with the issue of our expectations, in other words, who expects a a Messiah to suffer and die, we all, in this part of the passage, Jesus is now teaching us, defining true greatness. What he's dealing is with the issue of reordering our lives, our relationships, and our approach to relationships. See, again, the context of the section, they're journeying together, they come to Capernaum, they come to a house, and they're arguing with one another about this. And why are they arguing? Because, of course, they're insecure. Their life is about proving themselves, validating themselves. They're about their status. Let's be honest with ourselves. I implore you, be honest with yourselves. None of us are secure. Every single one of us are insecure. We're all concerned with how we look. We're all concerned with our status. We're all concerned with the image we present before others. What does Jesus do? He turns it all upside down. He challenges our all, all of us in that sense, our closet narcissists. And he turns it upside down, reversing these human values, saying, if anyone would be first, be last and be the servant of all. William Lane again writes, he says, in Mark, however, the dispute over greatness indicates the degree to which the disciples had failed to understand Jesus' solemn affirmation concerning his abandonment to the will of men. It also shows how filled, how impregnated they were with the temper of their own culture, where questions of precedence and rank were constantly arising. He goes on, he says, the question of rank was resolved on the authority of Jesus. 
Jesus says, he who wishes to be first must determine to be the servant of all. The surprising reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank is a practical application. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment is to love God with all our being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what Jesus is saying. It means to love your neighbor as yourself. Be your neighbor's servant. Do you know how much that changes our approach to everything? It means we approach relationships. And notice the language here. Determined to be last of all and servant of all. All means how we relate to our family. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, children to parents. How we relate to one another as fellow, the communion of saints, members of the church together. It also all means all. How do we relate to the world around us? How do you relate to your neighbor living next door to you? How do you relate to your neighborhood? How do you relate to the city or the city you live in? Jesus is defining greatness as being a servant of all. I think to myself, wouldn't it be great? He's telling us, desire greatness. I can't help but think to myself, it'd be great if Spruce Creek were a great church. That's a good thing to aspire. Jesus is saying, Spruce Creek, you want to be a great church? Here's how. Look at each other and look at those around you and say, how do I serve my neighborhood? That means asking very specific questions. If we're last, that means our needs come after the neighborhood's needs. Our needs come after the other person's needs. We're last of all and servant of all. That means we have to identify very practically what are the needs of those around us. What are they thinking? Where are their hopes? Where are their fears? What are they feeling? How do they perceive life? What's the loneliness that they go through? What is the baggage that they bring? What are the false beliefs? We are to be ministers of reconciliation holistically, spiritually, bringing the gospel to people, physically meeting needs, psychologically, how people think about themselves, and socially, how they relate to one another. God has anointed, called, and equipped the church. We only have the Holy Spirit, by the way. You think we have enough equipment? Oh, it's only the Holy Spirit. I think we've been equipped to go out and be agents of reconciliation to the world. Once again, the question needs to be asked and is begged to be asked, are we listening to the Word of God? It's right to desire true greatness, but it's defined as being the last of all and the servant of all. That means as we think about ministries, what should be shaping them are questions like, what does it look like to serve others? What does it look like to put others before us? Now, how in the world are we going to make this happen? How in the world do we do this? Look what happens next in the text. Jesus has shown us the direction of greatness. He's defined greatness. But now he's going to do something that is absolutely incredible. And in that context, it's utterly mind-boggling. He's going to demonstrate true greatness. And what does he do? He takes a child who was in the house places the child in their midst and reveals and demonstrates his love and tenderness towards this child. Now, why is this utterly amazing? Because in this enacted parable, there would have been nobody who would have been a lower rank. You know how we have the saying sometimes, or at least I, 
I remember this saying from my growing up. Maybe we don't practice this saying anymore. Children are to be seen and not heard. Go sit at the kids' table. You know, that I heard that all the time. It was always like, can I come to the grown-ups' table yet? Here, in this society, in this culture, children were to not be seen, not be heard. And what does Jesus do? He prioritizes, he notices, he brings up, he embraces, and he brings a child, and he puts them right in the middle of all of them. And then he so identifies with this child, and then he says, whoever receives one like this child, the voiceless, the one that's not noticed, the invisible one, whoever receives and welcomes and embraces him, embraces me identifies and associates with me. And more than that, the one who identifies and associates and receives me receives the one who sent me. In other words, noticing the vulnerable, the outsider, the voiceless, the one who is not to be seen or heard, associates with God the Father, the heart of the Father. And of course, why is this is? Because who's the ultimate child? Who's the ultimate helpless vulnerable, weak, dependent one. It's us. We are the ones who are helpless and can't help ourselves. We are the ones who are weak and don't have strength. We are the ones who are vulnerable. We are the ones who are like that child. And what does Jesus come to do? See, this anticipates what he will say later. Same gospel, and so interpreting Scripture with Scripture later on in chapter 10, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, he demonstrates true greatness with this child, anticipating and foreshadowing the evidence and the demonstration of true true greatness, which he will do when he gives up his life for us in a substitutionary sacrifice, giving his life for us on the cross so that we could actually be made, not voiceless child, children, but beloved, adopted children. How does Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 5? He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love through the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What did we say? How? What was the dynamic of greatness, we said? True greatness will occur only to the degree that you are consumed with the greatness of another. And being consumed with the greatness of another means being consumed not simply with what, who Jesus is, but what he did to demonstrate his love for you. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to die, to give his life. And that sets him apart from the founder of every other major religion. For the founder of every other major religion, their purpose was to live and be an example. In other words, say, here's what I do, do this after me. But Jesus' purpose was to die and be a sacrifice. And Jesus didn't have to die despite God's love. He had to die because of God's love. And it had to be this way because all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Keller goes on to rightly say, think about it this way. You can either make the sacrifice or the other person is going to make the sacrifice. It's them or you. 
Either you suffer temporarily and in a life-giving way, or they're going to suffer tragically in a wasteful and destructive way. But all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus made himself last and became a servant to you and I, substituting himself for you and I on the cross, demonstrating his love, not despite God's love, but because of God's love. Do you embrace that? Does that functionally shape your heart? Not just believe it as a great idea and fire insurance to get to heaven when you die, but as something that shapes and governs how you approach your families, how you approach relationships, and how we approach the outside world. Does that shape our style of relating to others? That yes, we want to be a great church, but you know how we be a great church? We seek to have a great neighborhood and a great city and a great county around us. Because Jesus demonstrated his greatness by giving his life as a substitute for us. Does that shape and govern our hearts? Let's pray. Lord, may this be good news to us. That Jesus, you so loved us. That you substituted yourself for us. I pray that you would teach us what true greatness is. What it looks like. And then mold and shape and sculpture our hearts according to it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.